I want to read to you a portion of Lord's Day 16. If you want to follow along, it's on page 878. And we're going to focus in particular on question answer 44. Question and answer 44. Page 879, 879. Why does the creed add he descended into hell? To assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ, my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. And now I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 22. A really remarkable psalm. Psalm 22. I'm going to read the verses 1 to 21. To the chief musician, set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm. And no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide their garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. So far, the reading of God's holy word.
whenever we recite the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Jesus descended into hell. But what does it mean? Did he literally enter the place of torment where Satan and all the despisers of Christ will be eternally? Where was Jesus during the period between his death on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday morning? Did he spend that time in hell? According to the testimony of Scripture, we must reject the view that Jesus literally descended into hell. Why? First of all, do you recall what Jesus said to the thief on the cross next to him? Luke 23, 43, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, this very day. Then also, just before his death, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. From his death on Friday to his resurrection on Sunday, Jesus was in the presence of his Father well, what then is meant by the phrase, he descended into hell? What are we confessing when we recite the creed? We need to understand Jesus' descent into hell as taking place not after his death, but while he was on the cross and already earlier. He experienced unspeakable anguish, pain, terror of soul, and hellish agony during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross. What he suffered before and during the crucifixion was his descent into hell. This morning, we want to consider the first 21 verses of Psalm 22, dividing this portion into three parts. First, a desperate cry. Second, a deadly conflict. And third, a delightful conclusion, a note of triumph as the suffering servant overcomes the pains of hell and emerges as the victor as the result of answered prayer. This psalm moves from the terror of darkness to the light of victory. First of all, then, a desperate cry. In Psalm 22, we have a prophetic and poetic description of the suffering and agony experienced by our Lord. Psalm 22 has rightly been called the Psalm of the Cross. It is an accurate and graphic description of the crucifixion of our Lord. Spurgeon said, it is the photograph of our Lord's saddest hours, the record of his dying words. David, the writer of this psalm, experienced many afflictions and sorrows. But this psalm goes far beyond the experience of David. It speaks of crucifixion, a method of execution that was not even known at the time of David or for many years after David. We need to see Psalm 22 as a prophetic and messianic psalm. It is quoted several times in the New Testament, all in reference to Jesus. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 30, the apostle Peter called David what? A prophet, a prophet who spoke of the Christ. David was a king, but he was also a prophet. He foretold things concerning the Messiah. If we view Psalm 22 as just one of those tough moments in David's life when he felt as though everyone was against him and God had abandoned him, then we miss the main point of this tremendous Psalm. 
by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David was able to see through the corridors of time to Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. He was able to prophetically see the day of Christ's descent into hell. The day when Jesus would pay the penalty for sin, the great day of atonement, being a prophet, David foresaw and spoke of the Christ. When you go to the New Testament gospel accounts of the crucifixion, you will see that it was this very psalm that Jesus reflected upon as he hung from the cross. He knew that David's prophetic psalm was being fulfilled in himself. On the day he was crucified, you remember children, on the day he was crucified, there came a sudden darkness over the land. He was crucified at 9 in the morning. From 9 to 12, he hung from the cross and during the mockery of those who stood by. At 12 noon until 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land as he remained on the cross. At the most unusual time of the day, when the sun was at its highest point, there was complete darkness for three hours. What was going on when God brought those three hours of darkness over the land? In the Old Testament, there are many passages which speak of darkness as a sign of divine judgment upon sin. That is also true in several New Testament texts. Jesus himself said that unbelievers would be cast into outer darkness. From 12 to 3. Our Lord experienced the darkness of divine judgment. It was there that the wrath of God was poured out upon the Savior and He received the punishment for sin. As the substitute for sinners, He felt the intense agony of outer darkness, the anguish and torment of hell. In congregation, what was Jesus thinking about as He endured those three hours of hellish agony? We don't know all his thoughts during that period of time, but there are some things that we do know. We read in Matthew 27, verse 46, at about the ninth hour, which is three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the three hours of darkness were drawing to a close, this desperate cry was heard from the lips of our Savior. It was a direct and obvious quote from the first verse of Psalm 22. As Jesus was enclosed by darkness, he was reflecting upon this very psalm. From some of his other statements from the cross, it becomes evident that Jesus was contemplating passages from the Old Testament scriptures. He understood that what he was experiencing was a fulfillment of Psalm 22. Look with me, please, in your Bibles to verse 1, a desperate cry. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. This is perhaps the most profound and unfathomable portion of this psalm. 
Who can comprehend this cry as it comes from the lips of the Savior? The suffering servant cries out to God knowing that he has forsaken him. Yes, why? Why are you so far from helping me? Why do you not respond to the words of my groaning? God is silent. It is as though he has shut the gates of heaven so that the cries of the Son only echo back to him without answer. The Son reaches out to his dear Father, but the Father does not take hold. Before uttering this cry of agony, Jesus had experienced those three hours of divine judgment. The everlasting darkness which you and I deserve was laid upon Christ in those three hours. It was there that Jesus was forsaken by his Father as he bore the sin of his people on the cross. It is in this cry of despair that we come to see and understand the essence of the atonement. Jesus bore our hell. He bore our punishment. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was during this period of forsakenness that propitiation was made and the wrath of God against human sin was averted. There are theologians today who don't like to speak in these terms. They don't like to use words such as propitiation, for propitiation presupposes what? The wrath of God. Even some translations of the Bible have replaced the word propitiation with the word expiation, but there is a significant difference between those two words. What's the difference? Expiation has to do with the covering of our guilt by the sacrifice of Christ. It has to do with the work of Christ that is directed towards man. Propitiation, on the other hand, has to do with the work of Christ as it relates to God. Jesus, by his sacrifice, averted the wrath of God. Jesus gave himself to be forsaken of God, to be separated from the fellowship and communion which he once enjoyed with the Father. All the suffering and all the wrath and all the punishment that, that would have justly been poured out upon you was instead poured out upon the Son. How one member of the Trinity can turn away his face from another member of the Trinity is beyond our understanding. There is no illustration that could adequately explain what it means for the Father to forsake his Son. And yet we believe it because this is what the Bible teaches. Jesus cried out, but his Father did not hear. Verse 2. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, you do not answer. Brothers and sisters, you might think that in the midst of this, the sun would become bitter. After all, isn't that the way we often respond when we are under the afflicting hand of God? But that is not the response of the son to, the, to his father. Look at verse 3. In the midst of the horror of divine darkness, the Son is still able to say, but you are holy and throned in the praises of Israel. 
The Son knew that the ways of the Father are perfect. In Him is no unrighteousness. Who can question or challenge the ways of the Holy One of Israel? As the Son of God endured the hellish agony of the cross, He remained in perfect submission to His Father. He knew His holiness and that He did not make mistakes. He is the praise of Israel and worthy of their praise, for He is holy. Verses 4 and 5, the psalmist illustrated from history the righteous ways of God as he delivered his people. Verse 4, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. As the son endured the terror of God forsaken as he never lost sight of what his father had graciously done for his people in times past. When the fathers trusted in God, he delivered them. When they cried out to him, they were not disappointed. Jesus knew that if this was the experience of the children of God throughout history, then surely, surely the loving favor of God would also be restored to him, God's perfectly obedient son. If God showed himself gracious and faithful to Israel, then he will surely be faithful to Christ, even though he is currently forsaken. Jesus knew that the loving face of God would shine upon him once again. Because God is holy, he does not forsake the righteous. Those who trust in him will not be put to shame. Deliverance will come. Jesus will see the reward of his labors. But then, congregation, as we go on to verses 6 through 8, we are once again brought back to the reality of the crucifixion. Because God is holy, righteous, and faithful, deliverance will come. But Jesus must nevertheless experience the unspeakable pain in order to complete the work that he began. The crown can only be received by way of the cross. And so in verses 6 through 8, we once again find ourselves gazing upon Golgotha. Look with me in your Bibles to verse 6. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. David was able to prophetically see the mockery and scorn of the people who surrounded the cross. The glorious Son of God was reduced in value to nothing more than a worm. I am a worm and no man. I am a worm and no man. Jesus appeared to be as utterly helpless, frail, and powerless as a worm. Imagine, imagine congregation, the Lord of glory compared to a worm the weakest and lowliest of creatures. He is as a worm despised by the people. In verses 7 and 8, we are reminded of how he was treated at the cross. All those who see me ridicule me, or all those who see me laugh me to scorn. 
Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one. He came as the chief prophet, the great high priest, and the eternal king. But they laughed at him. They laughed at him as prophet, mocked him as king, and ridiculed him as priest. They hurled insults and shook their heads in contempt, verse 7. And if you look at verse 8, I'm sure that you immediately recognize those words. Verse 8. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. These words were precisely reproduced at the cross, Matthew 27, 43. Psalm 22 reads more like history than prophecy. The description of what Jesus had to endure is so very accurate. God, the Holy Spirit, enabled David to see all of this hellish agony of our Lord. Then as we move on to verses 9 through 11, for a brief moment, our thoughts are taken away from the cruelty of the cross as the Savior once again contemplates past mercies, God's former kindnesses. Look at verse 9. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. You could summarize verses 9 through 11 by saying, Every moment of my life has been under your watchful and loving care. Every moment you have been my God. Jesus was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit and guarded in the womb. As a young child, he was preserved from the slaughter of Herod. And as he grew, the Lord always sustained him so that he was able to accomplish his task. Because the Lord had been his God from his mother's womb, Jesus knew that he would not be forever forsaken. On the basis of the Lord's nearness to him in the past, He calls out in verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. We know that during the trial and crucifixion, everyone abandoned him. There was no one to help. All his disciples had forsaken him. Even Peter, who made such a bold promise, even if everyone leaves you, I will not leave you. Even Peter lied, denied his Lord, and fled. There was no one to help, verse 11. No one to help. But congregation, the worst of it all was not being forsaken by his disciples and friends. The worst part was being forsaken by his God. The greatest difficulty of the crucifixion was the absence of the loving, shining countenance of God. Verse 1, the Son of God called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? In verse 11, he again calls out, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. 
He who had experienced the nearness of God since the womb of Mary, and yes, even before his conception and birth, he experienced blessed, perfect fellowship with his father. Now that same son feels as though his father is very distant, far away, out of reach, out of touch, out of fellowship. Be not far from me. The congregation, the father cannot yet return with his loving presence. Once again, it's as though God does not hear his desperate plea. And the cries of the Son echo back to him from the closed gates of heaven. Before the Father can reply in love, the Son must complete his descent into hell. In verses 12 through 18, we are brought back to gaze upon the sufferings, his sufferings at Calvary. Verses 12 and 13 describe for us in figurative language the enemy that was against him. Go with me, please, to verse 12. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. The bulls of Bashan were known for their size and strength. Bashan was a fertile place, and its cattle were well-fed, large, and strong. Jesus' enemies, the priests, elders, scribes, Pharisees, rulers, are compared to these enormous, strong bulls of Bashan. He's surrounded by these angry bulls that are anxious to gore him to death. Those of you who live on farms know how dangerous and obnoxious bull can be. A friend of mine once saw a bull pick up his boss and toss him around like a rag doll. He thought it was the end of him, and it certainly could have been were it not for the benevolent providence of God. An angry bull can be deadly. In some countries, they still, as you know, practice bullfighting. If a bull gets a hold of a man, he can gore him to death in short order. Maybe you recall several years ago, Forty people were injured in northern Spain when a raging bull jumped into the packed grandstands of a bull ring going berserk. He leapt over the wall and the fence and climbed up the stairs of the stands, knocking people over. Well, in verse 12, Jesus is like a helpless, unarmed man in the midst of a herd of furious bulls. It's as though every avenue of escape is cut off. As a man, Jesus felt the terror that one feels when surrounded by wild bulls. Then in verse 13, the figure changes from strong bulls of Bashan to what? Roaring lions. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. The despisers of Christ are compared to hungry lions that open their mouths to devour the prey. They long to tear him to pieces as a wild beast tears apart its victim. Jesus is the meek and tender lamb in the midst of roaring lions. These descriptions of the enemy give you an idea of how intense their hatred was. Those who loved the darkness could not stand the light. As we go to verses 14 and 15, we are further shown the suffering of our Lord in His final hours. The Savior speaks, and what does He say? I am poured out like water. 
and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. These verses are the description of a, of a very pitiful man, one who is dying in extreme anguish. As water is poured on the dry ground and disappears, so is his strength. It is spent. His whole body is in such extreme pain. It's as though all his bones are out of joint. His vigor is gone. His heart is as melted wax within him. Verse 15 goes on. Have a look. Verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. As an earthen pot is baked in the fire until every last drop of moisture is driven out, so is the suffering Savior. His strength is completely dried up, dried up like a potsherd. Thirst and fever make his tongue stick to his jaws. He has come to the brink of death. Then in verse 16, we are given a third figure for the enemy. They are as bulls of Bashan, they are as roaring lions, and verse 16 says they are as dogs. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Jesus is, as it were, surrounded by a pack of hungry, vicious dogs. And notice what verse 16 calls the enemies of Christ. They are the congregation of the wicked, a band of evil men. They are servants of the wicked one. Possessed and driven by him, they are motivated by Satan himself. We need to understand that the enemies of Christ were not merely flesh and blood. Yes, the scribes, the Pharisees, the rulers were there surrounding the cross as bulls, lions, and dogs. But the motivator of it all is the prince of darkness himself who desperately tried to bruise the heel of Christ before his own head was crushed. Jesus was opposed and attacked by demonic powers, demonic hatred and opposition. We read in verse 16 that this band of evil men who are motivated by evil powers, what did they do? Pierced his hands and his feet. Here we have an obvious reference to crucifixion. In no way can this describe David or anyone else except Jesus Christ. Our Lord says of himself in verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. While Jesus' wasted form hung before them, his bones visible through his flesh, the assembly of the wicked gawked at him with a sense of satisfaction. And while he hung there in misery, this band of evil men decided to make a little profit by dividing up his garments among them and casting lots for his clothing. Even the little that Jesus had left was taken away. These few items of clothing, which were his only personal possessions, were taken away, stolen by his executioners. 
When you read the gospel accounts, congregation, you see once again how precisely these things were fulfilled. Verses 17 and 18, again, read more like an historical account than a prophecy. It shows us how perfect the Word of God is. A thousand years before it took place, the Holy Spirit enabled David to see it unfold with absolute accuracy. That which the New Testament authors recorded is in complete harmony with David's prophetic utterance in Psalm 22. There is an amazing unity between the Old Testament prophetic word and its New Testament fulfillment. God is the God of history, and He unfolds His plan according to His absolute will. Well, then we come finally to verses 19 through 21, which marks a turning point in this psalm. We've seen the desperate cry of Jesus due to the alienation from His Father, point number one. We've also seen the deadly conflict as his enemies surround him, flesh and blood enemies as well as spiritual hosts of wickedness, point number two. We come now to the turning point of this psalm, a delightful conclusion, a delightful conclusion. Once again, the Savior pours out his heart to his Father. Until now, his voice only echoed back to him with no answer. The father was far from the son and stopped his ears, as it were, to the voice of his pleading. Nevertheless, the son again calls out in verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. There you have it again. Verse 1, why are you so far? Verse 11, do not be far from me. Verse 19, do not be far, far. We need to understand that his bodily afflictions, as terrible as they may have been, were really the least of his difficulties. What he longed for was the nearness of God. His physical thirst on the cross was but a small inconvenience when compared to the real thirst, his thirst for the living God. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so his soul panted for God, thirsted for the living God. You, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from this hell into which I have been plunged. Verse 20. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Lord, do not leave me in the hands of this wicked assembly. Deliver me from the attacks of the devil. Draw near to me that I may again see your holy and beautiful face shining upon me. The son, in agony, reaches out to the father. So far, there has only been a cold, stony silence. But then we come to the climax. The last line of verse 21 says this. Have a look. The last line of verse 21. You have answered me. This, people of God, is a cry of triumph, victory, 
You have answered me. The darkness has departed. The judgment is complete. The loving presence of his Father is restored. The warmth of his fellowship regained. His thirst is quenched, for you have answered me. Having been forsaken of God as punishment for our sin, he again became aware of his Father's presence as his spirit was commended into his hands. Yes, Jesus descended into hell. He experienced the hellish agony of God forsakenness on the cross. Why did he go through it and willingly endure it? So that you, so that you may be delivered from the unspeakable anguish and torment of hell. Sometimes you'll hear unbelievers say rather flippantly, go to hell. Right? Or someone who has been through a very traumatic experience, he might say, I've been through hell. Congregation, when someone makes such a statement, he has no idea what he is saying. Christ experienced hell. Bearing the burden of the fiery wrath of God. Hell is not something that you can begin to imagine in this life. Suffering as a prisoner of war, experiencing the horrors of a concentration camp, enduring the most painful of cancer treatments, none of these even come close to the terrors of eternal hell. Dear friends, if you want a better understanding of what hell is like, just meditate on this passage for a while. Take it in. Absorb it. Hell is complete separation from the love of God. Hell is the total absence of the favor of God. Hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the presence of God in wrath. Hell is the total absence of the favor and love of God. Being forsaken by Him, Having his smile depart from you, being delivered into outer darkness is far worse than anything we can imagine on this earth. But the good news, the good news, brothers and sisters, is that when you repent of your sin and look to the cross by faith, you can be assured that Jesus will never let you experience that horror. He bore your hell so that you may share his heaven. He received the outpouring of divine wrath that you deserve for your sin. Then consider, congregation, the great love of your Savior. You cannot buy your way out of hell. And you cannot merit the pleasures of heaven. You can only receive salvation as a free gift through faith in the crucified Jesus. Have you put your trust in him? If not, your future is grim. You will face his eternal, unquenchable wrath. Hell is your eternal destiny. 
But if you repent before him, you can be assured that he bore your hell so that you may be delivered from its eternal terrors. Then praise him for his tender compassion. Worship him for his great salvation. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. May that be the confession of each one of you as you come to the table this morning. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we cannot even begin to fathom, to comprehend the depths of misery into which you were plunged in order to rescue us from it. We praise you. Thank you. We say together as a congregation, hallelujah, what a Savior. Fill the hearts of your people with deep gratitude, profound appreciation for all that our Lord Jesus endured. We pray that as we receive the bread and the wine, Lord, our hearts may be so filled with love that we cannot but Praise you with our lips and with our life. We ask, dear God, that if there's any here who have not put their faith and trust in this one who descended into hell, Lord, we ask for your mercy. We're reminded through the words of this psalm of the horrors of everlasting punishment. Oh, dear God, we pray that you would spare each person here from it. May we rest our hope in the one who was condemned. Hear our prayer in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our substitute. Amen.